Let us pray together. Dear God of all mercies, we thank you for coming through Jesus to save and heal our world, a world often of unfathomable suffering. And we thank you for the way that Jesus healed suffering people and showed us your great suffering or your great compassion for us and showed us what the world will look like when it comes fully under your reign. We pray this morning as we look at suffering, such a, an amazingly complex subject, that you would be with us in our uncomprehension and that your spirit would lead us still to be a healing community for your world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The idea for our series on healing originates with Sheldon Martin five months ago at a time when he himself was yearning for a fuller measure of God's well-being in his own life. He shared his idea with our worship commission and it quickly gained traction with us as we talked about all the ways that we too were yearning for God's healing in our own lives, in our homes and families, in our congregation, in this city. Healing between races, healing between nations, healing for all of creation. And we felt especially drawn to Sheldon's request that we focus on stories from the Bible in our own lives where healing has come, where healing is only coming very slowly, and where healing is not coming at all. And so today, today, this morning, I'll be focusing with you today or especially on those last two, those last hard ones. How can we here at East Chestnut support each other when the healing that we are desiring and praying for is coming so slowly or does not seem to be coming at all? In the story of Job we find God's people already 2,500 years ago, perhaps even 3,000 years ago, already struggling with the question, the problem of human suffering. Why does it happen? And who on earth is responsible for it? Now, it's very likely that this particular story of Job circulated among the Jewish people for centuries and then was finally written down during their 
very painful and traumatic exile in Babylon around 2,500 years ago. In this story, Job is a man of great virtue and great blessing. His life is filled with well-being in the beginning. Physically, he has everything he needs. Relationally, he's in loving relationship with his neighbors. And spiritually, he's in loving relationship with God. In short, his life is filled with what the Bible calls shalom. He's brimming over with shalom, his life is. Deep peace, well-being, and wholeness. But then in this story, Satan comes along and on a wager with God, suddenly strips away Job's shalom. And Job loses absolutely everything. He loses his ten beloved children. He loses his servants. He loses his livestock. And then he loses his own health. And when we meet up with him today in chapter 2, he's sitting in ashes with his body covered with sores swarmed around with flies. As we learned two weeks ago, human suffering invariably leaves us feeling terribly alone, terribly alone in three different areas and in three areas that often compound on themselves. Let's look at Job to understand this a little bit. With Job, first of all, we see his physical isolation. He suddenly finds his body body in a separate universe of agony. We have this terrible picture of him scraping his wounds with a broken piece of pottery. It's hard to imagine anything worse. But added to this, there's his relational isolation that he's experiencing. His community has very likely deserted him, fearing the contagion of his disease. Remember, this is 2,500 years ago. And finally, there's his own sense of deep spiritual isolation. What has he done to deserve this calamity? Is God punishing him? For those who are suffering like Job to experience this triple whammy of physical, relational, and spiritual suffering all at once, it can be nothing short of deadly. It can kill us. But if if his faith community can come to help him in even just one of these areas to perhaps lift the crushing burden that he is weighed or he's feeling right now in at least one area, perhaps a door might even be opened for his healing 
to begin in some way. In our story, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, I don't know anyone named those three. Anybody ever heard these? I think Zophar is a pretty cool name. They come along to console their suffering friend, to comfort him. And for us here at East Chestnut this morning, they are such a beautiful model for what it looks like to come along those who are suffering, at least at the beginning. Let's look. First, when they see Job, what do they do? They weep aloud. They tear their clothes. They cover their heads with dust. They enter fully into the grief of their friend. That's what they're doing. Whose suffering has made him almost unrecognizable. Second, they physically join him down on the ground. And they sit down there where he is. They now see reality from his vantage point. They suffer with Job, which is the core meaning of compassion. Come with passion, suffering. To suffer with. And then, for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven days and nights, for a whole week, they don't say a word. To Job. They keep silence with him because they see that his suffering is so great. Notice what we see in Job's friends hearts filled with compassion, eyes brimming with tears. Ears ready to listen. Mouths very slow to speak. And bodies ready to be fully present. You know, back in seminary, a very dear friend and classmate of mine in his late 20s suddenly lost his pregnant wife and their child to a brain aneurysm. I was just a couple years older than him. I was an absolute stranger to this kind of tragedy. I'd never experienced it before. And I was terrified even to go into his presence. What would I say? What would I do? And these verses, which I just happened to be studying, I was in a class where we were looking at Job, these verses guided me. They helped Todd Friesen to keep his mouth shut. That's a rare thing. They helped me to keep my ears open. 
And they helped me to keep my body ready to be there for Adam when he needed me. You know, usually in life we get things wrong and then we learn from our mistakes and we get them a little more right. At least that's hopefully the pattern that we have in our lives. But not with Job's friends because after being our model for a faith community, they now take Job on a long and painful bender of speculation, explanation, and condemnation. They're doing this because they assume that we live in a mechanistic universe of cause and effect. A cosmic vending machine kind of world where you put in your good deed and you get a blessing from God. You put in your sin and you're going to get punishment and disease. There must be someone to blame for Job's suffering, they think, and it has to be him. Why do they do this? Why do we do this? Ever done it? I think we do this because it is so incredibly threatening to come face to face with the suffering of others. Especially when it seems random and inexplicable. When this happens, we're forced to ask, am I next? And especially when we see bad things happen to very good people, we sense the need to revise our bad theology and our naive moral equations or even just to throw them out the window. But that's a lot of hard work to do. And facing our own cognitive dissonance and our own sense of vulnerability in this world is not easy, is it? It's hard. And so often when we encounter people who are suffering, we instead blurt out painful platitudes instead. God never gives you more than you can handle. Ever heard that? This will make you stronger. Wow, thank you. And it's all part of God's plan. And sadly, these kinds of terrible things are often heard most frequently in the church. Instead of being the healing community that God desires us to be, we become the wounding community. We further burden the suffering of people by adding to their relational and their spiritual suffering. And when we do this, as it says in Proverbs 25, we might as well just pour vinegar into their open wounds. That's what it feels like. 
And so our dear Job, in response to his three friends, flies off the handle, doesn't he? Have windy words, no limit, you bunch of miserable comforters. When are you going to stop your jabbering? And then in chapter 21, this goes on and on and on. Why do you torture me with your empty explanations? You know, in my own life, after going through years of struggling with infertility and then experiencing the long and slow decline of my brother who died at the age of 46, I've heard my share of these painful explanations. But here's the rub. I know that before I knew better, I also said many of these same hurtful things to suffering people. And this has taught me that a crucial part of being a community of healing is being willing to extend grace when we hurt each other, especially when we hurt each other unknowingly. We just have to extend this grace. And we can look to our Lord Jesus, who on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They have no idea. In our final reading, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And he urges them, it's such a beautiful passage, he urges them to be a community where their suffering is shared, held in common, and where God's consolation can flow through each of them to one another. So beautiful. And I don't know of a better example of what Paul is writing about to the church of Corinth than the story that we find in Acts 14. And we're going to study this in more detail in two weeks. But just briefly, there we find a story, Acts 14, of Paul being brutally stoned by his enemies, dragged outside the city gates, and left for dead. But then his faith community comes and gathers around him. And he's able to get up. This, dear friends, is the church being the healing church that God intends. Whenever a sister or brother is suffering, we gather around them. We envelop them with our prayers and we seek to lift some burden from their lives, whether physical, relational, or spiritual, so that God's healing might begin. That's what we do.
the Peruvian theologian Gustavo Gutierrez says that in Job we see the face of every person in this world who is suffering. And even today, Job lives on anonymously in our sisters and brothers in places around the world like Syria, Nigeria, and Iraq who are experiencing such profound suffering and violence and trauma right now. And closer to home, we might add to this list communities of color in Charleston, communities of sexual minorities in Orlando, whose suffering as well is immense. How will we respond to their suffering? You know, when we lived in China for seven years, the damage that empire and Christianity had done to China over many centuries was so profound that words from us were completely inadequate. All Danette and I could do was simply live for seven years with the Chinese people enter fully into their reality and take directions from them about the best way to begin healing our relationship. Today we'll soon be gathering at our Lord's table. Friends, let us turn anew to Jesus the pioneer, the perfecter, the perfecter of our faith. Because it's in Him that we see most beautifully what we see only momentarily in Job's friends. A heart filled with compassion, eyes filled with tears, ears ready to listen, and a body ready to be fully present and even broken on our behalf. May our Lord Jesus nourish us at his table to live in the same way. Amen.